Lord, we just pause in the midst of kids moving around and even the chaos in our own heart and everything that's going on in our lives, in this room, and you're here. And Lord, I ask for uh, you to speak to each one of us today through your word and by your spirit. And so we thank you in advance because we presume upon your grace, Lord. Thank you that you will speak. Thank you, God. Amen. So I was on vacation in Colorado the last few weeks, and Jade and I had a wonderful time with her family in northeast Colorado and farm country, riding on tractors and letting the kids almost run over corn and um, just hanging out with them, and then spent a little bit of time with her sister in Loveland, uh, Colorado. And uh, over the break, I, the book that I brought with me is this book called Momentum, and it's by a uh, father and son, they wrote it together from a church in Redding, California, and uh, it's, it's about spiritual inheritance. And props to, and thanks to Renee for the book. She was out there in, in Redding and bought it for me as she was visiting one of our, our friends, Matt Schwabauer. And uh, the book describes what it takes not just to see a move of God, but to sustain a move of God. And it's all about generational and spiritual inheritance of one generation passing something off to the next that they can take it to the next place. And one thing as I you know, was on vacation, no matter where you go, you can never escape the brokenness of the world. And maybe in Disney World. But other than that, you know, and maybe even there, it's, that's obviously still there. I'm joking. But the questions just start to come up. Like, God, you know, what do we need to do in this next season to see you move? And what do we need to establish as a culture in our church to sustain a move of God through generations? We're starting a series today on hospitality. We're going to be on this for the next three weeks. And uh, as we're looking towards the fall... Yes, I'm sorry, I did say fall. It's not quite August, but it felt like it last night. Um, We're going to be looking at today being hospitable to God, being hospitable in our homes, and being hospitable as a church. And here is what we are going to find. Hospitality welcomes heaven. It is hospitality that welcomes heaven. So we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today that that kind of teases this out from uh, your favorite book, the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. Pretty much everyone knows what this book is about and is in agreement on all the different aspects of this book. Thank you for laughing. Revelation was written by the Apostle John while he was exiled on this island off of the coast of Turkey called Patmos. And uh, the nearest kind of major city back in that day was Ephesus. And there's six other churches that are addressed in this beginning of the book of Revelation. And so there's seven different sections to seven different churches, and they're all along kind of this route 
that possibly the Romans would have taken, you know, on their way to Jerusalem to destroy the temple in AD 70. That's debatable. Um, and so we're going to be looking at the last of those. The, the, I mean, one of the most well-known letters in that section called uh, Laodicea. So without getting into all of the details of Revelation, because there is so much there, if you want to know my opinion at some point, please ask. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of passionate about it. But we're looking at kind of what the framework of the book says in verse 119. He says, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And we're dealing with what I would say is the what is now. That Jesus is speaking to these churches who are all in different kind of cities and all have a different journey that's happening to them. And he's speaking specific words. And then at the later part of the book, chapters 4 through 22, he's talking about what will soon come. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to read starting in verse 14. And this is the letter to the church in Laodicea. Revelation 3, 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write... This is Jesus speaking to John and telling him what to put down on paper. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say... I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the brokenness of this world that is inescapable, in our own lives, in our places of work, our neighbors, our families, what does it look like? What does God ask us to do to see a move of God? And what does it necessitate to see that move of God sustained? If you want to see God work, make Him feel welcome. God works with us. He's always working, the Bible says. But when we welcome Him into that work, we get to see it take off. We said earlier this year in our revival series, God goes where He is wanted. If you want to see God work, make Him feel welcome. Now I'm going to do 
a line-by-line kind of sermon today, so you can kind of track along with me if you have a Bible, or Anita will probably put this stuff up on the screen. So the first section of this, there's two kind of groups or people mentioned. The letter says, to the angel at the church of Laodicea. Now, let's just kick it off with making it really confusing. What is that? I would just argue, this is debatable, but I would just say it's referencing the leader of the church in that city. You could use the word bishop. There was probably multiple churches in the city of house churches or maybe some larger gatherings even possible too. And this is saying to the leader of the church in that city. The word angel can be translated as messenger. And this letter is being addressed to the leadership. And who's sending it? Well, this weird person called the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Let's keep that a little interesting to figure out as well. Well, if you kind of read through all the other letters, it's pretty clear that that's Jesus speaking to his church. The reference to the Amen, we say this a lot, it kind of means so be it, but it is also known in the Old Testament as kind of the sealing of an oath or a covenant, you would say. So when you made an agreement with someone, you would say, Amen. In other words, if I don't keep this covenant, let the curses fall on me. So be it. Let's keep it. So Jesus is referencing himself right in the outset as the Amen. The one who has kept the covenant. The one who has taken the covenant curses upon himself so that even when we disobey, we still have a relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? He's the Amen. Right? Every promise is yes and amen in Jesus. He's the faithful and true witness, meaning that he always keeps his word and his word is always kept because what he says actually creates reality, right? And what he says, he always keeps his promises. And he's the beginning of God's creation. Just like we read about in Colossians chapter 1, everything in the world was created through Jesus. And he's also the firstborn of creation, meaning that he's the first to rise from the dead and never die again, and to initiate His kingdom, His new creation. That's not just new created peoples, but a new created world in this earth. He's launched that in the victory of His his resurrection. Come on! He's establishing His credentials, so to speak, and authority to say, this is who is speaking to you. Right? It is the one who has created the world. It is the one who has kept the covenant promises and invited you into a relationship with God that you don't have to earn it. You just receive it by, as a gift. And everything I say is true. I always keep my word. And my words actually make reality happen. Last winter, we were living in... We've been on this long journey of moving frequently. And uh, Lord, give us a home in Jesus' name. Last winter, we were living in the, in the townhomes of Beverly, and the chaos of moving with little kids and everything, after the first month, I just totally blanked on writing the rent check. And so like a week later, we got a letter on our mailbox, and it was from the management of the townhomes, and I was like, oh, I'm going to read that. You know, like, I wonder what this says. And it's like, you're being evicted. You haven't paid your rent. And I was like, oh my gosh. I freaked out, right? There's, there, was, there was some weight behind these words. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here, right? He's saying, hey, there's weight to what is being saying because I am the one that has all authority, right? Now, if you've heard this this passage before, there's two temperatures that are being talked about. So Jesus establishes authority and then he moves to, hey, this is what's going on in your church. 
in the church in this city. He says you're not hot and you're not cold. And both of those are good. Hot water is good. Cold water is good. Laodicea was um, in a tri-city area and had water piped in from two other nearby cities. This one city uh, was called Colossae. The book of Colossians was written to them. And they had cold water that came down from the mountains. And so they built these pipes to pipe this water into, this really cold, refreshing water, into the city of Laodicea. They were east of uh, that area. A little bit north and west was a city called Hierapolis, and they had hot springs. And so they would pipe this water into the city, you know, from Hierapolis, miles away, build these pipes, and get this hot water into the city of Laodicea. Now, this is ancient times, right? There was no refrigeration. So as you can imagine, when the water arrived, there's always the battle to keep the hot water hot and the cold water cold. And so oftentimes, the pipes would get clogged up by different mineral deposits and it wouldn't flow as freshly as it would have and it would get there and it would be, it'd be lukewarm. You know, not that fun to drink, not that fun to take a bath in, especially in the winter, right? So this is what, this is what Jesus is saying. He's not saying like, oh, like hot is super on fire Christian and cold is you don't even know Jesus. No, he's just saying, he's using this as an analogy to say, I know your works, they stink. They're not good for anything, actually. He's being rather blunt with them. It's not good for bathing, it's not good for drinking, right? What they're doing is not reflecting Jesus in their works, the way that they're living, and it's not having an impact on the society around them. I had two really interesting conversations earlier this week, just on, I think it was Thursday and Friday. Two different people who were just describing the toxicity of their place of work. You know, just how it, for each one of them, it felt like the culture of their workplace was oppressive. The call of us as followers of Jesus is to reverse that culture and bring the culture of heaven to those places. And that is what Jesus is calling out this church and saying, guys, I know your works and they're not reflecting my kingdom or my character. And so Jesus is threatening to remove them if they don't repent. Right? They'll lose their place. He says he's going to spit them out of his mouth. It's actually an Old Testament reference to Leviticus 18 that is what ends up happening to the Israelites in the land. It says that God is going to spew them out of that land because they weren't reflecting God's kingdom or His character. So essentially, this is an eviction notice. Just like I received in the mail, God is saying, hey guys, if you are not going to change and repent, you will be evicted. He doesn't go into the details of what that would look like. But He's giving them a warning. Now, The city of Laodicea was actually a really wealthy city. It was a banking center. And they had three things that they were kind of known in Turkey for. They were known for their their wealth and gold. They were known for clothing, this special fabric that they had, and, and an eye cell. And he uses all three of these things that they were very familiar with in their city to make spiritual kind of theological points to them. So 
Banking, that's known for having money, right? But he rebukes them and says, you're actually poor. You have all this wealth, but you need real gold from me. Real riches. You need to invest yourselves in what will last forever. Right? They're living lives of disobedience. Uh, In that city, they're known for this black wool that was kind of a coveted fabric. I'm guessing they probably had, you know, black sheep. You know, Baba black sheep. Maybe maybe that's where it came from. Probably not. Uh, And so it was kind of a highly sought-after fabric to make fine clothing. And Jesus says, you're naked. You think you're dressed and you've got it all, but really, you're naked. Meaning, they're not reflecting the character of Jesus. And he, he challenges them to put on white clothing, the opposite color of this fabric that they had in that culture, in that city, representing purity, representing the, kind of this big spiritual word of sanctification, of growing to act and live more like Jesus. And the last thing, they were known for this, I don't even know how to say this word, but Phrygian powder that they would use to make an eye salve that was also sought after. People would come to this city to get kind of different medicinal things that were there. And this was a, like a, a, an eye salve that they had that people would put on their eyes to hopefully bring healing. And Jesus says, you guys are blind. You think you've got it all figured out. But you can't even see the spiritual reality that is all around you. He says that they need a change of worldview. The way that they are seeing the world needs to change. The way that they're making decisions needs an overhaul. In, uh, in middle school and high school, I was a two-sport athlete. I played soccer in the fall, and then I played basketball in the winter. In the spring, I had off. And I was a pretty you know, type A student. I you know, was pretty diligent in my studies. And the funny thing that I started to recognize is that my grades actually were usually better in the fall and the winter than they were in the spring when I had all the time in the world to study. Go figure. I don't know if you've ever realized this in your own life. Right? It's often when we get squeezed a little bit or there's pressure on that we end up being a little more disciplined. It's when we kind of have it made that we tend to get a little lazy and get off course. There's a lot of parallels in this letter between our culture in America and I think what they were experiencing in Laodicea. Why? Because we are so wealthy. For most of us, we don't worry about where the next meal is coming from. And we joke about, you know, first world problems. But we still often are so blind to what is really going on around us in the spiritual world. We're not investing ourselves in things that will actually last forever or will actually see heaven come to earth. The kingdom of God advancing in our families, our neighborhoods, and in our cities. And that's, I think, often why the challenge for the church in America is we don't see what is happening in a lot of the rest of the world because we've, we've essentially been blinded by the wealth that we have around us. And I'm not saying that wealth is wrong. Just don't take it that way. 
So Jesus calls in this letter a call to repentance. And he does this, he says, because why? Because he loves the church. He loves the church. He loves the people of Laodicea, his body there, and he wants to see them living in a way that actually is going to bring them life. It will be their best life now, along with suffering. But it's way better of a life than they would have apart from following Jesus and bringing his kingdom to this earth, making earth reflect heaven. Right? Jesus says he reproves and disciplines those that he loves. Now, discipline, we always have this, this image maybe of someone just giving someone a whack, right? But that word is really meant, it's really talking about teaching, instructing someone in the way that they should go. Okay, I'm not advocating for or against spanking, but I think we often think when we hear the Lord saying he's disciplining us, we think he's punishing, he's beating us down, he's angry with us. That's not what's going on here. Now, sure, there may be some frustration or anger, but God is saying that the emotion that he has towards his people is love. So earlier I mentioned this eviction letter that I got uh, at the townhomes. And so as soon as I could, I rushed down to the, the office. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I forgot to pay the rent. You know, and, the, and the woman was just I said, oh, that's totally fine. That's just a policy of ours. If someone doesn't give us the rent by a certain day, we have to send out this letter. And I was like, thank you, God. <laughs> you know, we have a place to live. And so I just paid the rent, and she was like, I'm so sorry that scared you. You know, thanks for, thanks for paying the rent, whatever. Right? It was a warning. But, but there's really just grace when we change our direction. I changed from not being a payer of rent and a bad tenant to saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I paid my rent. That's what Jesus is looking for here. He doesn't want to punish. Right? Jesus doesn't take delight in, in death or in punishment. He delights in us coming to Him for freedom. He's speaking the truth in love. So what is it that the church is to do if we are not reflecting God? Or if we want to see more of God's kingdom released in our families, places of work, neighborhoods, cities? What do we do? Well, as I stated earlier, if you want to see God work, Make him feel welcome. And here comes the most beautiful part of this letter. Jesus says he stands at the door and knocks. Now back in that time period, if there was a military uh, leader or an official, you know, a Roman century, they could stand at the gate of a city and say, Behold! And bang on the door. And they had the privilege and the right that that city had to let them in and provide food and shelter and anything that they asked for. Now you can imagine that that privilege was abused because it was often it could just be a demand. There was no request in that. It was hospitality by force. But Jesus is presented in a contrary light to that cultural norm. He's knocking at the door, but asking for permission to enter. Isn't that amazing? We hear in the beginning of this letter, the one who has all authority, 
who's created the entire world and is now recreating it. The one who never breaks a promise, who's always faithful, and actually his words create reality. He asks for permission. He doesn't demand, manipulate, or abuse a position of authority. That is absolutely incredible. And many people have used this passage to kind of describe, you know, hey, this is Jesus knocking on your heart so that you will put your faith in Jesus. But this letter is actually written to people that are followers of Jesus. Which the sad thing is, is that this is a church, a group of believers, and Jesus is outside. He's knocking on the door and he's wanting to be a part of what's going on. But he's not invited. Now, it blows my mind. If this letter, my personal opinion is it was written before AD 70, if you kind of do the math, that leaves 40 years from kind of Jesus's, you know, death. And then how long did it take? I'm guessing Paul probably planted that church. He planted most of them. How long did it take? How long has this church been in existence? 10 years? 20? Maybe 30? And already Jesus is outside. Because the challenge for us is it doesn't take long for us to kind of move Jesus to the periphery. Where He's feeling like He's not welcome to move in our midst. And can you see the picture that He's painting? For He doesn't want to come in and then just take charge and start ordering people around and kicking some people out. What's the image we see? Everyone loves to eat. Eating is family. In the Bible, it represents actually making a covenant with someone. You didn't just eat with any old person back then. All through the Bible, right, especially in the New Testament, you see Jesus getting shunned for eating with sinners and tax collectors. Peter withdraws from eating with the Gentiles at one point, and Paul rebukes him, right? There's always this weird thing around eating. Why? Because it's a sacred moment of communion. Oh yeah, communion, where we all eat food in the presence of each other and the presence of God to say, yes, Jesus, we receive you. We receive your sacrifice, and we are your people. Jesus is a gentleman. I mean, I feel like I heard that you know, a long time ago maybe, and I was kind of like, what does that mean? It means he's not a manipulator. He doesn't force himself on us. He's standing at the door knocking and asking to come in. Jade and I had a great time in Colorado, as I said. We stayed at her parents' house and then her sister. And when we were in her sister's room, we got a couple days just with them. And uh, then when some of the rest of her family, her parents and two of her brothers came out from Holyoke, uh, we had to shift around, you know, shuffle the rooms and the, and the sleeping. And so we were in their guest room and they moved us up to actually their bedroom. And uh, so we could be closer to our boys and stuff. And it's just like, wow, right? That's hospitality. And don't you know that when you invite someone into your home, your schedule changes a little bit. Sometimes you have to sleep in a different bed. Sometimes you're cleaning up a few more messes. Sometimes there's awkward conversations, right? Because there's families intersecting. Hospitality 
changes the dynamic in our lives, right? And when we are hospitable to God, He comes in and there's a rearranging of priorities and things in our hearts to reflect heaven. Right? So, why would we want to do this? I mean, we've got it pretty good, right? Just like the people in Laodicea. Hey, you know, we've, things are okay. Things are pretty good in our life, right? I mean, you know, pretty good maybe. I'm eating food and whatever. Why take the trouble to have our lives disrupted by God? To welcome Him in, which is often a scary thing to do, and want Him to kind of disrupt the things in our life that maybe aren't lining up with what heaven looks like. Well, as I said earlier, it's because hospitality welcomes heaven. And I, man, guys, I want heaven. I think worse than I've ever wanted it on this earth before. The longer I live, the more the brokenness that I see, the more angry I get at the devil and its sin, and the less I want to tolerate the kingdom of darkness, and the more I want to plunder that kingdom and rescue people from darkness. We cannot settle for a half-baked Christianity. It is no Christianity. Jesus says their works are nothing. The second to last verse contains the promise that we got to hang our hats on. Jesus says, the one who conquers, actually the Greek would be the one who is conquering. It's a participle. The one who conquers, or the one who is conquering, or the conquering one. I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and, past tense, sat down with my Father on his throne. Now, this does relate to how you view the book of Revelation. So I'm just giving you that as a, as a throwaway to say, hey, examine the Scripture for yourself. But Jesus has clearly sat down on the throne. He ascended and He is ruling and administering His kingdom from the right hand of His Father until it fills the earth. His kingdom will advance. And the invitation here is not a future hope. Like, okay, great, after I die, then God will call me an overcomer. No, it's to the one who is overcoming in this life. I will grant authority to sit on my throne. This is already a promise that Paul says we reign with Christ in heavenly places, but it is our cooperation with the Holy Spirit and our invitation to Jesus in our lives that allows us to actually ascend to that place of authority and claim it as ours. It makes a difference how we live. Everyone knows this. People that are sold out for Jesus, they see breakthrough. Maybe sometimes not even in their own life. Hudson Taylor, right? But in lives and generations to come. Guys, what we are doing, it makes a difference. And the ways that we are pressing into God and welcoming Him into our lives, it will make a difference for us and our children and our grandchildren. 
So the point, the encouragement of the whole book of Revelation is, is not be afraid because persecution's coming. Be afraid because of the Romans and Nero. Or if you think it's end times, be afraid because of the Antichrist. Although I don't support that. I don't support fear either. Whatever it is, the theme of the book is overcome. Do not give up. It's a victorious kingdom. It is unshakable. Jesus rules. And He will not be stopped. And His kingdom will advance. And it's the darkness that needs to be afraid of us. But the only way that we can bring the light is if we have it. Is if we are welcoming God into our lives. If we are doing life with Him. This is what I want as a church. Guys, I hate depression. And I hate cancer. And I hate that people suffer through abuse. That stuff needs to end. Jesus hates it. And He wants His kingdom to fill this city. So how do we be hospitable towards God? What does it look like? I heard a really awesome sermon once from a woman of God on hospitality. It's actually in this room, up here on this stage. And she said, hospitality is creating space by receiving grace. It's creating space in our lives for people. And today we're talking about creating that space for God. And we do that by receiving God's grace. Right? That's how we receive it, is creating space for God in our lives. And that enables us to extend grace to other people as well. Now there's two ways that we can do this, mainly. We repent and turn from our sin, and then we make space in our lives to receive the grace of God. Now you all know this. I mean, this is not, you know, read your Bible and pray. Okay, Please don't brush this off as a read your Bible and pray message. This is a bring God into every moment of your life. That is where they are lived. And yes, it is a read your Bible and pray. Because reading your Bible and pray is creating space for God to move. Now, this is going to look different for everyone in this room. Because we're not living by rules. We're living by love, the law of love, and we're being led by the Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant way. And so, that repentance is going to look different because your struggles, the things that you're, make you afraid to bring God into your life, right, are different for you than for somebody else. And what it looks like for you to follow Jesus and create space in your life to invite Him in, to develop a life of prayer, is going to look different for you. You know, I mean, even praise and worship. When we're doing what we're doing, when we're worshiping God, we're honoring Him, we're, 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 we're making Him smile, but it's also welcoming His presence in the room. Right? When we're declaring truth. I mean, when Alex was reading that blessing, I don't know about you, but I felt the Holy Spirit imparting that truth to us. Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. He wants to come in. The two things that I would mention today that keep us from letting Him come in is fear and unbelief. 
We're afraid of what He's going to do when He comes in. We're afraid of what He might ask us to give up. We're afraid He might ask you to go to the jungles of Indonesia, which He's not going to do unless you're dying to go there. And He puts that in your heart, just to, just to state that. And we won't let you go unless that's there either, amongst a number of other questions that we would ask. Right? He comes in. What is the picture? It's a table. It's a meal. It's a relationship. It's a friendship. That is what He is inviting us to. The second thing is unbelief. It's the, it's the unbelief that Jesus is actually standing at the door. We think He's down the road. He's at someone else's house eating with them. But He wouldn't do that for me. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Literally. That is a lie. And I rebuke and renounce that lie in the name of Jesus and I break its power over your life. Jesus is standing at your door and knocking and He wants to come in. The last verse calls for them to hear what the Holy Spirit, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, I have to say, we are not the church of Laodicea. I don't think if Jesus is here speaking, He's going to say, your works, you don't have any works and they're worthless. There are so many things that point to the love and character of Jesus in this church, and I'm proud to be the pastor of this church. I'm proud to brag on this church. I mean, you heard even last week from each other just what the Lord is doing in our midst. There's so many stories of you guys reaching out to your neighbors, sharing the gospel, praying for people. But I want more. Don't you? And so what is going to do that is creating a culture of hospitality where God knows that He is welcome that He has our attention and that we are an available people. Hospitality welcomes heaven. So let's have the band come back up. And what we're going to do as this verse says is let the Spirit, let, it, let the churches hear what the Spirit is saying. That's what we're going to do right now. We've got two songs lined up for this closing section. And the first one, it's just an invitation to listen to what God is saying. And there's two questions I'm going to prep you with. So for all of us, it's probably not a black and white picture of Jesus is out there or He's in here eating with us. There's always different places in our lives where maybe He's been welcomed in and other places where we've kind of pushed Him out. So I'm just going to give you two questions that I want to ask you. The first is, Jesus, where have I shut you out? What parts of my life have I said you're not really allowed in here? And then I would just ask you as He reveals that, just repent. If you want to come forward and kneel and repent before the Lord, I would encourage you. That's a physical way of actually also engaging in that. There's no shame in that. The second question I'll leave you with is, Jesus, what does it look like for me to welcome you in at a new level? What are you calling me to? Is it getting up early and praying? Is it staying up late to pray? Is it being with you throughout the day? Is it fasting? I mean, it may be a, a myriad of things for you guys. But I want the Lord to reveal that to you, and I trust He's going to do that now.
So the band's going to play this first song, and I'm going to close in prayer and just challenge you to ask the Lord, hey, what ways am I shutting you out? And secondly, how are you asking me to invite you in? Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here, and we now welcome you to move. We invite you to move, and as the best we are able, we open our hearts to you, and we ask for you to speak to us individually. Answer these questions, Lord. Reveal sin. Reveal the places we've shut out, and show us what the positive step is that you're asking us individually to take. Thank you, Jesus. Come and speak through your spirit.